0: But I'm glad that y'all are here this morning. Um, I'm thankful to be here. I want to start out uh, today by asking y'all a quick question about an observation that I've had about life, okay? Did you ever notice that the older you get, okay, the faster time passes? Did y'all ever notice that, right? It seems that time is compressed and, and time becomes short. The older I get, the shorter Things seem to be. For instance, when I was six, seven, eight years old, um, you know, Christmas seemed to like take forever to come around. Did you notice that? I mean, it was it was an eternity. It was an eternity. Um, um, you've heard the saying. What's the saying? Slower than Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I got molasses over here. Slower than Christmas, which is slower than molasses. So they both it both works. But now now that I'm older, okay, it's not slow anymore. It's like it just comes just right around. It's like that Steve Miller song. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. Sing it. Into the future. Right? It's like the Steve Miller song. And uh, by the time it's almost here, okay before it's gone it's almost here before it's gone and it's like Christmas is over and then all of a sudden Sandy's coming up to me saying hey what are we going to get for the grandkids for Christmas this year I'm like oh my gosh it's already here the older I get the faster time goes by Uh, is it like that for you because it is for me it is for me Forrest Gump said life is like a box of chocolates right you never know what you're going to get. And, that, and that's really wise. But someone else with a lot of wisdom said this. They said, they said, life is like a roll of toilet paper, not a box of chocolates. Life is like a roll of toilet paper. Okay? The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. That's right. And it's true, isn't it? No personal testimonies. But the closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. Time compresses. Life compresses. And it feels shorter the older that I get. Well, I kind of feel... That way about this series on the Gospel of Luke. Okay, the first six weeks it seemed to be moving kind of slow, but now it's it's almost over, right? I mean, we're in Jerusalem, right at the door of the crucifixion and the resurrection, like that. When it, it's just it's gone so quickly. Time is compressing. Time is compressing. I can't help but think, okay. That maybe Jesus felt the same way at this point in his life, and at this point in the Gospel of Luke, that that he felt that way. You know, that time is compressing. I mean, it's a week, right? Time is short. There's only so much time that he has left with his disciples. And Jesus has so much to say. He still has so much to give before the end of his earthly life. But everything is about to change. Everything is about to change. So there's a lot of urgency. There's a lot of urgency to every lesson and parable that he teaches. There's a lot of urgency for Jesus now that he's in Jerusalem. Every day, every hour, every moment is precious to Jesus. That's where we are in Luke. That's where we are in Luke. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping. It's just going. It's going. A couple of weeks ago, chapter 19, we learned about Zacchaeus and his transformation. We learned from his transformation. Jesus touched his life, and he was completely transformed. That's what Jesus does, and we learned that. We also heard about how we need to be responsible and faithful with what the Lord has given us as we wait for the return of Jesus. We learned about that in the parable of the ten minas and the ten servants. We also saw Jesus make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the shouts of the crowd, but also to his disciples, not just his twelve disciples. Jesus had, uh, in Acts talks about over about 120 disciples that were following him, and they were all shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of, Of the Lord. The Pharisees had a problem with that. They said, Tell them to stop. They shouldn't say that about you. And what did Jesus say? He says, Well, if they stop, the rocks and stones will say it. Because something huge is happening. Something huge is happening. Jesus, the king, rides into Jerusalem on a colt to a royal welcome. But as he does, as he does, as he enters Jerusalem, he's lamenting. And he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps. And he prophesies and foretells the destruction of the holy city and the temple. He said, they will not leave one stone left upon another. He's speaking of the Romans. right? And it happens some 30 years later, 70 AD. The temple is flattened and burned. The city is destroyed. All the gates are burned. Chapter 19 concludes with Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer, and you've made it a robber's den. After that, at the end of chapter 19, he's teaching in the temple daily. And what are the chief priests and the scribes trying to do? Well, they're trying to catch him in something so that they can accuse him of something. And that's where we pick up today. Jesus is still teaching in the temple Verse one and two of chapter 20 says, "On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, which is the good news, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. So they confront him. And they spoke saying to him, Tell us what authority you are doing Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority." Who's the one that gave you this authority? So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confront Jesus and his teaching in the temple in front of everyone. Now, now these people that are confronting him are the big religious muckety-mucks, right, in Israel. And the, it's the chief priests and company. No one has more religious authority in Jerusalem and Israel than these guys. Or so they think. So they think. They're supposed to be the ones who are the final authority about God and who he is and what it means to be a Hebrew, a child of Abraham. They're supposed to be the authorities, but they feel threatened, okay? And they feel threatened by Jesus. Why would they feel threatened? Well, because Jesus actually has authority, all authority. He is authority authority. And many of the people of the time recognizes that. Many places in the gospel is like this. Matthew 7, 29, it says, Jesus taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes did not like that. The scribes did not like that. Nor did the priests or the elders or the Pharisees because they're all in that together. They're jealous of Jesus and all the attention that he's getting. You see, the people are going to Jesus instead of them to ask questions. The people are listening to Jesus instead of them. They're following Jesus instead of them, and they didn't like it. And what just happened? Think about it. What just happened? We just talked about it in chapter 19. Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. That was a direct challenge. Do you see that? That was a direct challenge to these people because they approved of all that. And Jesus says, no, no, not in my house that was a poke in the eye to the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Pharisees. It was a challenge to their authority. All through the gospel, Luke has made it very clear that Jesus has authority. He has authority over nature. You remember in the calming of the storm? He has authority over sickness and disease. He was healing people all of the time. He has authority over evil and demonic forces and casting out demons. He has authority over the law and the interpretation of the law. He even goes as far as to say, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I decide if you can do this and if you can do that. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus even forgives sins. You see what's happening here? Jesus does things that only God can do. God's the one who forgives sins. But Jesus does that. So they don't like Jesus. Jesus. And they want to get rid of him. And that's their plan. So in verse 1, they confront Jesus and say in verse 2, And they spoke saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one that gave you authority. And this is how Jesus responds to their attempt to trap him. Because he knows that's what it is. This is how he responds. Listen to verses 3-8. through Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question, and you tell me. In other words, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. Verse 4, he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? In other words, was was he God's servant, or was this just all his idea? And they responded, they reasoned among them, that was Jesus' question, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe in him? Because they didn't, they rejected John. But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet, which he was. So they answered that they did not know. It's like a congressional hearing. I don't remember, right? I don't know. I plead the fifth, right? I don't know. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Would you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, may these these words of Scripture, these words and teachings and parables of Jesus and the way they fall upon our hearts and our understanding, may it bring insight to us about who you are and who you call us to be. I pray that our hearts would be enlightened yet also convicted. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you're saying to your church. Lord, help us to be grateful and humble and faithful as your servants. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. If you remember, John the Baptist was the main witness for Jesus being the Messiah and the Son of God, and not just in Luke, but all four Gospels. John is the main witness in the, the Gospel of John. You remember, he's, John is the one that said, Behold, the Lamb of God who, what? Takes away the sins of the world. That was it. But in Luke, John is the last in a long list. Luke is very exhaustive. In a long list of witnesses. Actually, the first witnesses in Luke were the parents of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And, of course, John's birth. His birth was a miraculous birth because she had been barren. The angel Gabriel is a witness when he appeared to Zacharias. And then he appeared to Mary, the mother of Jesus. You're going to have a child virgin birth and then he appeared to the shepherds and he said glory to God in the highest remember today in the city of David there will be born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord and then the eighth day after his birth at his circumcision in the temple uh, Simeon was there as a witness this is the promised one along with Anna the prophet he is the one this is the prophet they they testified to it and finally Back to John the Baptist, he comes into the picture as this adult prophetic Elijah figure in the wilderness, foretelling the coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist is the one the Old Testament, when he was talking about it. he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. And John is a big deal. We talked about this. He's in the history books, so it was Jesus, but of Josephus, he was a prophet. And like they said, oh, they'll stone us to death because all the people believe John was a big deal. So Jesus was very intentional in his questioning about John's authority and ministry because the the muckety-mucks in in Jerusalem rejected John. They didn't like John. Well, they're also rejecting Jesus and more. They're out to get him. So he puts them in this catch-22 situation, right? They can't answer the question because either way they lose. He outmaneuvers them. And beats them at their own game. And and then he says, well, if you won't answer my question, I won't answer yours. Checkmate. Boom. Advantage Jesus. That's what he does. That's how it opens in those verses. Next is the parable of the vine growers. And uh, Jesus is telling this parable to the same people he was just having a conversation with. The people who challenged him. The people who he just outsmarted. The chief priests. The scribes and the Pharisees. And all the people. They're there. He's teaching in the temple. It's a continuation of that conversation. But before I read through it, I want to give you a few things to listen to. Because I'm going to read through it, but I want to give you some things just, just to listen for. Okay, First of all, this parable, in this parable, Jesus is targeting those people. Okay, He's targeting them. He's calling them out on the past, present, and future of the religious leaders in Israel and Jerusalem. And they begin, as he's telling the parable, they begin to figure that out. Okay? They realize, okay, in this parable, I want you to know that when it says the vine growers, he's talking about the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, all those religious leaders. Those are the vine growers in this parable. So listen for that. And the man who owns and planted the vineyard, that is a symbol for God. He's, he represents God. The slaves who were sent and mistreated by the vine growers represent the prophets of old, but also, I believe, John the Baptist represents the prophets that they mistreated. And finally, the owner's son who was sent to them and killed by them would be who? Yeah, Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the son of the uh, owner of the vineyard. Well, when the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to realize that Jesus is talking about them and their predecessors, okay, they get offended. They're offended. They're really upset. But they didn't change course. They weren't convicted by it, they were just upset that he was calling them out. Jesus is calling them out because he knows who they are and what they're all about. He knows what they're up to. They're scheming against him and they're working against the purposes of God. And that's the point behind this parable. So with that understanding, listen as I read verses 9 through 18. And he, that is Jesus, began to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers. So kind of like a sharecropper, right? And went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce from the vineyard because that's the way it works. When you're a sharecropper, you share share of the bounty. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave. And they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Handed, And he proceeded to send a third slave or servant, and this one also they wounded and cast out. Those represent the prophets that they mistreated and they didn't listen to, just like they're not listening to Jesus. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Yeah. Jesus But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus was actually crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? What's God going to do? That's what Jesus is saying, and they're, they're starting to get this as they're listening to it. He will come and destroy these vine growers, right? And will give the vineyard to others. And I think there when it says others, I think it's symbol for the Gentiles. The, Jesus and the Messiah was rejected by them. So he'll give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, may it never be. That's a word, it's two words, meganoita in the Greek. It's used by Paul a lot in chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Romans when he says, shall we sin all the more that grace might abound? And Paul says, Meganoita. may it never be. No way. May it never happen. So they're saying, oh, no, we're not the bad guys. That's not No, that can't happen. But Jesus looked at them, and I can only imagine how he might have looked at them. Not sure what that would have looked like. It says he looked at them, and he says, what then is this that is written? The stone, he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. The stone that was rejected is who? Jesus, the Messiah. And this became the chief cornerstone. Who? Jesus. He was the new covenant. He's the beginning of all the new things that God is doing. He is the one that's bringing that good news of God's salvation to the world. It's Jesus. He's doing that. Everyone who falls on the stone, he said, will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, they will shatter him like dust. So the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are very upset with Jesus because he's he's telling this parable about them, and it becomes obvious, okay? He's got their number, and they know it. He's calling them out and challenging their authority yet once again, much like John the Baptist. So they continue to ask trick questions to catch him in something, which is what is about to happen in verses 19 through 26. They want to get him in trouble with the Romans, right? Right? The Romans are the ones who are the overlords, right? They're the ones who run Israel. They're the ones who also have authority to throw someone in prison or to kill someone. They want to get him in trouble with them and convince them that he is inciting a rebellion against Rome and Caesar. They want Jesus to look like an insurrectionist. That's what they want. Okay, listen for that in verses 19 through 26. It says the scribes and the chief priest tried to lay hands on him, that very other. So they wanted to grab him then because he's really offended them. They wanted to grab him then. But they feared, or, and they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So not only did these guys know that Jesus was talking about them, the people figured it out, right? They, oh, yeah, he's talking about them. That guy's got some guts, and Jesus does, right? So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him, listen to this, so they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the government, which is who? Probably Pontius Pilate, right? The Roman governor. They want to deliver him to the Romans. They want to get him in trouble with the Romans. They questioned him saying, and this is how they do it, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. They're schmoozing him now, right? The spies right, that are acting like they're there sincerely says you are not partial to any but teach the way of god in truth they're laying it on thick right trying to earn his trust and they said this this is the question this is the trick question is it lawful for us to pay taxes to caesar or not that's called a loaded question right that's called a loaded question and they know what they're doing ah but so does he Verse 23, but he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius, which is a Roman coin, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. So he talked them into a corner. They're speechless. Once again, Jesus detected their trickery, played their game, and avoided the trap they had set for him. So next, they try what they're trying to do is to catch him on a doctrine issue. A religious doctrine and belief issue. And it involves the Sadducees, the resurrection, marriage, and indirectly, the Pharisees. They want Jesus to get caught in the middle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were from two different schools of Jewish thought, and they did not agree on a lot of things. And one of those things was the resurrection of the dead. They did not agree on that. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in life after death, like as we do, right? The Sadducees did not. They believed that when you're dead, you're done. And and when you're dead, you're doornail dead. All right? No hope beyond the grave, no hope, no nothing. So here's where one of my favorite corny preacher jokes comes in. This is, I'm, are you ready for it? Yeah. It's great. It's one of my favorite corny preacher jokes, and it will help you remember this fact. You ready? Okay. So the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Sadducees don't. They don't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they're so sad, you see. Pretty corny, uh, but it's memorable though. Thank you, thank you. I don't get applauded for very often. Thank you. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees did not, and that's why they were so sad. You see, Sadducees, right? Somebody else just got it. I heard it over there. They didn't miss it the first time, right? That's why they're so Sadducee. The point is that Jesus is more in agreement with the Pharisees about the resurrection than he is with the Sadducees, so they try and trip him up. With this intricate, you're going to hear it, this very intricate and complicated scenario that they think supports their point and view that there is no resurrection. But Jesus, okay, as Jesus does, he handles them. And he handles them with grace and wisdom. Teaching them as one who has authority. Because that's who Jesus is. He doesn't say something because, oh, I think I heard it one time. He knows because he is the son of God and he teaches as one having authority. Listen to verses 27 through 40. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection and that's why they're so... Let's try that again. This side did really well. Where were y'all? Okay. I'll read that verse again because this shows you remember it. Now there came to him some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection and that's why they were so... That was so much better. Thank you. I'm going to go home happy today. That's working out. It's working out well. And they questioned him, saying, teacher, Moses, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So if the brother dies, you marry his wife and you try and have children for his name. See? So here they go. they're they're doing this big complicated scenario now there were seven brothers and the first took uh, and the first took a wife and died childless just like they said and the second and the third married her and in the same way all seven died they should call this the parable of the black widow right what did she do it's okay it's just a made-up story they just made it up So he said, they all died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? They think they got him, right? There's the the gotcha question. For all seven had married her. And here's Jesus. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. In other words, that's what we do here. We marry and we're given in marriage. That's, That's what we do here. But... Those who are considered worthy to attain to the age of the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's not the way you do it after the resurrection. That's not after life after death. There's not not the marriage thing. Verse 36, for they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Jesus is saying there is an afterlife. Yeah, we're not going to be married We're going to be different. We're going to be like angels. It's going to be different. It's not going to be there like it is here. And then he says this. He gets to the question. He says, but that the dead are raised. So he's going to clarify the resurrection. Even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he says, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live in him. So he's saying... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob obviously were alive. Life after death. And he's speaking about that. There is a resurrection. There is a life after death, after the grave. Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Those last two verses are great. The scribes could not help but agree with Jesus, but it was more than that. Speaker, you, you, Jesus, you have teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. I mean, pretty much he wore him out, right? He's like, oh, my gosh, we can't get this guy. They were done. The scribes and the Sadducees waved the white flag of surrender to Jesus' superior intellect, his wisdom, his reasoning, and his knowledge of Scripture. They're okay we're done. Every attempt they make to catch him and accuse him, they are thwarted. Jesus turns it around and schools them, so they just give up at least for the moment. They give up at least for the moment. This chapter, we're coming to the end, this chapter ends with a lesson and a warning. Okay, here's the lesson. The lesson is about the Christ and his relationship to David. David, when I say David, I'm talking about the legendary king of Israel who was not just a military hero and leader, but King David was a spiritual hero and leader in Israel and still is, still is to this day in the the Hebrew faith. Okay, He was a very special person. It appears that Jesus is addressing a misunderstanding that the Christ would be the literal son of David like Solomon was. And like Absalom, one of his first generation sons. So he's trying to correct that because that's a misconception. Here Jesus is correcting that. Luke and Matthew's Gospels firmly establish that Jesus is in the line of David. They both have genealogies that firmly establish that. He's a descendant of King David. He's in the line of David through Mary, okay, as Luke points out, and also through Joseph, as Matthew points out in his genealogy. And that is what is foretold in the Old Testament. So listen as Jesus sets the story straight in verses 41 through 44. 41 through 44. Then he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ, which means Messiah, is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then he says this, why would David say that, right? He answers that, therefore David calls him Lord and how is he his son? Well, he's not, he's not. That's what Jesus is pointing out. But why would Jesus make that clarification? That's a question we need to ask. Why would Jesus make that clarification? Well, because Jesus is what? Jesus is the Christ. And he's not David's first generation son. He is in the line of David. So Jesus makes that clarification. That's why Luke includes this exchange in the gospel along with the genealogies in chapter 3 and all the witnesses that I went over earlier and all the fulfillments of prophecy. It's because Luke has researched this thoroughly. If you remember in the opening verses at the very beginning of this, it's addressed to who? Do you remember? Luke is addressed to, anybody remember? Theophilus, yeah, it's addressed to Theophilus. And he tells Theophilus, I have researched all of this thoroughly. You know, he's interviewed Peter, he's interviewed John, he's interviewed James, he's interviewed all these people. So he's done it carefully. So, so he has researched it thoroughly. Luke wants Theophilus to know, he wants us to know, and he wants everyone to know that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's, that's why he includes this in this passage. That's the main point and the purpose of Luke's gospel. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. That's the point. That's what he's trying to do. That's why that's addressed right there. The last three verses of this chapter are a warning. It's a warning to the disciples, but it's also a warning to others that are listening in on the conversation. Because Jesus is still in the temple. All the same people are there. right? Um, But he gives this warning. And it's not what you might expect. It's not like the warnings that we've heard recently in the last three chapters. We're also going to hear about this more next week. But the last three chapters about the second coming and the end times, that it's like lightning, it's going to be sudden, it's going to be obvious and final. Some people are going to be left behind. Some people are going to be taken. There's a lot of scary, actually, kinds of things that he shared about that. This is not like that. Okay? This is not one of those warnings. This is a warning about wrong motives in religious leaders, like me, okay, or like a bishop or like a rabbi. This is about... A warning about motives for religious leaders. The big muckety-mucks that he's been dealing with in Jerusalem. That's who he's talking about here. So listen to what Jesus says in verses 45 through 47. 45 through 47. It says, and while all the people were listening, so they're all listening, he said to the disciples, who were sitting all around, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplace and the chief seats, the really nice seats, not the cheap seats, the chief seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. So he's saying watch out for these religious leaders. They, they act like they're all that. Their motives are all whacked out. Watch out for them. They're not what they appear to be. They're doing what they do because they like the perks. They like the seats. They like the titles. They like the respect. They like the honor. That's not a reason to be a leader in the Christian church or in Jewish uh, synagogues or anything. He's saying that's, that's not why people should be leaders. And then verse 47, he says, who devour widows' houses. Okay, what in the world does that mean? What he's talking about is very often the religious leaders would serve as executors of the widow's estate after their husbands passed. And that they were misusing some of those funds, taking some of those funds maybe for themselves and for something in the temple or something like that. But they would devour the estate of these widows. That's not good, right? And for appearance sake, offer long prayers. He said they love those on prayers, right? For appearance sake. In other words, they want to be seen, they want to be heard, they want to be honored. And then he says this. Okay, These will receive greater condemnation. or It's going to be harder on them than it is on everybody else. So bottom line here, what Jesus is warning us about is people who appear to be religious, holy, righteous outwardly, okay, but don't always have the best motivation. And they don't always do right by others so he's saying beware the scribes but he's also talking about the chief priest and the units you know, he's, he's talking about all that beware beware so lesson number one for us and the disciples is you've been warmed don't assume their intentions are pure but discern don't be assuming but be discerning and the larger lesson for us but this is especially for me i took this very personally i took this very personally as a pastor The lesson for me is, John, don't be like them. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Live to please God and not people. Do your ministry as unto the Lord for the right reasons. Test your heart. Make sure you're doing this for the right reasons. Do not misuse. Do not misuse your position. And do not abuse the trust of others. That was the lesson for me. That's what I got out of it. And his last thought is that those who do that will have a greater judgment. And that makes sense. Timothy talks about it. Religious leaders and teachers are held to a higher standard than others in the church. Held to a higher standard. And they will also be held to be more accountable. More accountable. So we're going to leave it right there. Next week, we're going to come back. It's going to be the end times. Right? It's going to be the end times. It's going to be the second coming. Uh, I read ahead. It's, it's really deep, deep stuff. And then the week after that, we're going to share in communion because it's going to be Thursday. Monday, Thursday and what? The Lord's Supper. So not next week, but the week after, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. Uh, would you all pray with me? Lord, like I said, Lord, help us to be um, faithful and humble and grateful. Help us to be who you've called us to be, Lord, you are our example. Help us to have right motives, to test our motives, to be the servant leaders you've called us to be, prayerfully, prayerfully putting you first. We pray in all things. God, I pray that you would let these, these words and these passages, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would instruct us. We thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name.